0: Hello, and welcome back to The Nowhere Office, wherever you are, with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. This is the podcast which looks at the world of work as it is, as it could be, should be, might be, with some of the leading thinkers and doers of the day.
1: Hello. And welcome to the first of three special episodes we're really delighted to be bringing you in association with Prospect, the leading British trade union for professional skilled workers with 155,000 members.
0: Yes, Prospect have enabled us to dig deep into some of the really timely issues around work today, some of the really thorny issues around work today. Such as strikes, of course, but also the resolving of conflicts, both in courtrooms and backroom negotiations. We're going to look too at the increasingly complex world of digital employment matters, from surveillance while you work from home to high-tech Twitter employees being treated the same as, well, old tech shipping company P&O employees, brutally terminated, one and all.
1: Yes, across all three of these programmes, we've got some terrific guests, including the woman who may be our next Employment Minister, that's Labour's Alison McGovern, barrister superstars Jamie Susskind and Baron John Hendy, KC, the astute media commentator Sarah O'Connor from the Financial Times and Adrian Wooldridge of Bloomberg, and some key voices from Prospect itself. We've got Mike Clancy, the General Secretary, Philippa Childs, Deputy General Secretary, And also Andrew Pakes, who is Deputy General Secretary of Prospect and Hafsa Begum, who is Head of Finance and Estates and who is presiding over one of the most interesting office moves to take place in London post the pandemic.
0: So we begin on location in an actual office, Prospect's current HQ. And we asked Andrew Pakes, Deputy General Secretary and Director of Communications and Research at Prospect to outline what we've got in store with this collaborative set of
1: programmes. But before we do that, we should just say as a matter of record that just as this episode was being edited for broadcast, the members of uh, Prospect voted by 80% in favour of industrial action on March the 15th. So it's a breaking story, an ongoing story, and that makes this episode all the more salient, you might say. Conflict resolution is the aim of negotiation, but sometimes escalation cannot be avoided. To Andrew Pakes. Andrew, I think we first met possibly on a Zoom quite early on in lockdown. I think we were both on a panel for a a think tank, and you said something very interesting, which I've been quoting ever since, and it's very fitting for the prospect trade union. You said it. I think it was something that someone in the Swedish trade union movement had said to you, which is that we should not, as workers, as trade unionists, we should not be frightened about the new machines. We should be frightened of the old ones. Tell us what that means. It's a, it's a very striking phrase.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really important motto about how we think about the future and change. And the Swedish trade union movement, the Swedish economy is based on continually innovating both you know, workers and businesses together. Because they know as a country the only way to afford the future they want is to keep selling, keep producing and do that through exports. The only way you do that is by bringing the new machines in. Look, one of the the great privileges of working for members in prospect is the the fascinating range of jobs they do. We represent everything from government bee inspectors and professional Premier League referees, through to climate scientists and engineers making some of the most cutting edge technology in defence and engineering we've seen. And yeah, you know, what could be more fascinating than the breadth of those jobs?
0: And one of the reasons, Andrew, why you were very instrumental in bringing the Nowhere office in to do three programmes with Prospect, is because people don't really know how trade unions work or trade unions like yours, do they?
2: I think that's absolutely right, isn't it? I think it's a bigger question. I think most people don't really understand how work works, whether they're employers (laughs) or workers or freelancers or employees. We've thrown all of the cards up in the air during the pandemic. And with the help of technology, we have started to redesign the world of work. And I can't think of organisations that should be more central to that than trade unions and putting a worker voice into this conversation.
0: Andrew, we've agreed to focus on three themes for these three programmes. What are they and why have you chosen them?
2: I think they're the, the three big themes that our members talk to us about, about how change is happening to them. Firstly, there's this is really big question around how do we manage conflict in the workspace? You can see that on telly and on the news with the strikes that are happening at the moment. And we often have a narrative or conversation about industrial action. We don't really have many conversations about industrial peace. How do we resolve the small and the large conflicts in the workspace? So I think to me, you know, that, that's the headline act. that and you've put a brilliant set of contributors together to look at these issues secondly it 's that whole thing about how is the world of office politics changing, whether you 're sat in an office like we are today or whether you 're joining colleagues through teams or zoom the, that hundred and myriad ways that power flows through the workspace and what does that mean about the water cooler, what does that mean about the small conversations, the big conversations? How do we relate to each other in this new type of world we 're going into and finally. You know, none of these conversations about flexibility would have been made possible without the acceleration of digital technology. And we now know that we, you know, most of us or many of us now have the ability to work from almost anywhere. But we also know it means our work can also follow us everywhere. And how do we renegotiate the boundaries of those elements?
1: Well, that's a fascinating mix, Andrew, that you've, you've set up for us. And those really are the big questions I'm sure people will be interested in hearing about. So we we'll look forward to working on this with you in the next few days. Brilliant, looking forward to it.
0: So as Andrew said, this first extended programme is looking at conflict resolution or conflict itself around work. And before we go over to talk to Mike Clancy, Prospect's General Secretary, here's a taster of who else we have coming up.
3: We're clearly going through a period of industrial unrest, aren't we? Of a a scale that I think hasn't really been seen overall since the 70s. Now, a lot of that is driven by the public sector, clearly. But We've also been seeing it popping up in various other places, including, as you mentioned, white-collar workplaces. So, you know, we've been seeing more kind of unionisation attempts among tech workers. We've certainly seen civil servants and other sort of office and clerical workers asserting themselves more than we might have seen in previous years. And the obvious sort of trigger for that is inflation.
4: To bring a whistleblowing claim, there are a number of hurdles that you need to get through. Firstly, you need to disclose information. So you can't just be giving your opinion about something. You need to actually disclose facts. And then there are various conditions attached to it. That information needs, in your reasonable belief, to be made in the public interest, disclosed in the public interest. And it needs to tend to show that something has been breached, whether it's a law or a health and safety concern, or, or that some kind of provision like that is likely to be breached. So there are all kinds of hurdles.
1: Yes, that was Sarah O'Connor of the Financial Times, who writes on work and employment through an industrial and economic lens, and the celebrated barrister and author Jamie Suskind, whose specialisms include employment law and the politics of technology on our working lives. But first, here's the boss. It's Mike Clancy, serving his third term as General Secretary of Prospect, who leads the union which represents 155,000 members at the heart of the world of skilled professional work. And Julia, let's let's take it from where you, you kicked off with Mike
5: just recently.
0: Welcome to the Nowhere office in your office.
5: Mm-hmm. It's nice to be here in my office.
0: Tell us about you and how you got to be you.
5: <laughs> so I was born in Liverpool, and that may say everything you need to know. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a product of that environment, there's no doubt. I'm, my football team is Everton. Anybody who knows me, my moods are entirely dependent upon their performance and consequently it's usually a dark and sombre mood for, for several decades and why I, I,
0: not a Liverpool supporter That's um, a seditious question but no all my
5: family were red apart from my mother so I my, rest in peace my mother but yes she brought me up in in, in, in the blue side all my friends at school were, were blue and if you grow up in the city and this is probably you now turning off every single person who's, who, who's a Liverpool fan listening to this you're more likely to be Evertonian so that, that's my that's my one prejudice I feel respect. like
0: this is now we understand why you're a trade union
5: yeah well uh, <laughs> well well actually, I mean I probably never I, I did law for my first degree and you know, I I remember being pointed towards criminal law or that sort of thing and it just didn't excite me. Trade unions politics did and I did an MA at Warwick and then I got a job in a research job in a union and then from there I worked through the different field officer, national officials, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The thing about being a union officer, every now and again I you know, I probably think I maybe should have on that barrister route or whatever. But I really have had the privilege to represent fascinating people who do fascinating things and given the nature of my mind and to know there. I've worked for unions for 30 odd years but I probably haven't done the same thing after every two or three years I move around different cohorts of members and so on. That that fascination that change has been what's always driven me and, and of course yes I, I fundamentally believe that unions with contemporary values working well with business Will make the country more productive. Will make the country more successful and equal. And will make for you know a, a better quality of life. And I pray and aid various indices from different countries where high levels of collective agreements drive equality, and where unions have good cooperative relationships with the state and, and, and with employers. And that's really what I've learned on my career. But basically, I'm a product of that city on, on that river. Prospect is an advocacy and influencing organisation and I, I often say that trade unionism is something of a mixture of charm and menace and on any given day you'll be using those in different proportions. So we've encouraged our staff to be back out and about and hopefully we're through the pandemic uh, influencing employers, advocating and promoting members' interests. And we've also encouraged them throughout when it's been safe and we've, we took great care in terms of our safety systems to come back into an office environment proportionately. We are working hybrid, but also to be out and about and to do that in a way that enables collaboration and enables engagement because these are stressful jobs and the collegiality and the support and the culture of the union is as important as as anything else. So we've been pretty clear that whilst we want to encourage a hybrid form of working, we wouldn't support and we don't think it's good for people to be working predominantly or exclusively at home.
0: Now, you've said about seven different things that immediately make us want to do an hour-long interview with you, but could I just ask two things? One is, how many people work for the union?
5: Around about 250 staffs, mainly in London, but we've got an office of state around uh, the UK and uh, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man.
0: And the second thing is, before Stefan, I know you're itching to get in here, is, I mean, charm and menace. Let's just talk about that, because at the moment in the UK, when there's a lot of industrial action, we're recording this at a time of the teachers joining the ambulance workers and the nurses and the train strikers and so on and so forth. How do you, as a negotiator, keep the peace when everybody's falling apart with rage.
5: So I think you've got to keep in mind that the job of a union, despite the current headlines, is to actually resolve disputes, not to further them. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I think members want us to have a constructive dialogue with their employer. They want us to be able to bite if necessary. But ultimately, and it is being said at the moment, using industrial action is a last resort. There is a definite contrast between the public and private sector. With the public sector, we are now seeing the 10 or more years of austerity in real terms, pay cuts, particularly for our members in the civil service, crash into the cost of living crisis of 2022. In the private sector, we actually have probably better relationships. They're not friction-free uh, by any means, but they have found ways of addressing the issue in the 2022 context, which have been at times inventive, and we've been able to find compromise and resolve these matters rather than necessarily end up in disputes. The best of our relationships, which tend to be with number of the private sector employers, involve us being committed to organisational design. Yeah. Our members are usually key to mission. And so if you take things like air traffic control or defence sector, we would be involved in organisational design. And clearly, if there was then a business crisis we have deeper roots in which to deal with that business crisis long-term trust-based relationships which allow you to weather moments of difficulty Mm -hmm. that is often the hidden part of employee relations that you know neither side wants surprises Mm -hmm. early engagement on a difficult issue normally means for a better outcome Mm -hmm. and therefore that's why quite a bit of the strike activity now is out of pattern it's obviously generates a huge amount of media interest because it's capital and labor Mm. in conflict. Most of the time we are solving things with employers. Mm. And actually I think unions need to find a way to be clearer about their problem solving role, about how actually working practices, organizational design are better when you engage the workforce are better when you engage representatives who are going somewhere in the business and therefore people to, to listen to and are good ambassadors if there is a if there is a trade union presence. And even if you haven't got that, you still got an employee relations and I've often been able to say to quite wise employers, you know, if the union wasn't there, and sometimes the union can be a bit of a pain for you, can't it? Because it's a bit like your children. You love your children until they get an opinion. And then, of course, you've got to justify yourself in a way that you never had to uh, when they were younger. But with a, with, with a union present, you've got a place in which to go to have the conversation. If you don't have a union, you can be attacked in all sorts of different ways these days, reputationally, cyber or whatever it may be, and that diffuse Environment of uncertainty can make some people long for a union.
1: Well, there's always an efficiency argument, apart from anything else, about collective bargaining. It's a lot quicker to come to national agreements if you can. But also, John Munson, you remind me, when he told us about being part of the solution, not part of the problem, there was always that, there was always that instinct to solve problems together because it's actually binding for corporate culture. It's, it's that sort of common purpose. And as you say, talk deepening the trust relationship as well. So there was always under the radar And
5: I think we've got to take it above an interposition where the radar locates it and the media does. And, And actually, you know, I can be absolutely certain that unions have not been good at this. You know, I'm an employer of staff as well. And I'm often, I would say to anyone, it's easy to find the problem. You've also got to identify the solution. And I think unions need to be good at that. A legislative framework needs to promote that. But unions have got to want to do it. And that's about making sure that there is an adaptation of the workforce to change, but not just at the price of the employer. So I I think, you know, we went through the pandemic. We hope to build back better. But 2022 has not looked like it.
0: How do you feel about this new mood, really, Mike, that... It cannot all be about pay, that there are issues in whatever sector it is where workers, white-collar workers, blue-collar workers, feel unloved, unseen, unlooked after. Is it, is it fundamentally, does it begin with pay? I mean, is that what, what's at the centre of the negotiations you end up doing?
5: it depends on the segment of the workforce you are in if you're in that part of the workforce where you do have a skill which means you're not easily jettisonable the conversation about your working practices the the scope of your professional voice and so on are important and and location flexibility is important notwithstanding that there's a number of professional occupations where location flexibility is not available you know it's not so easy to repair a submarine from your from your living room and it's certainly not so easy to do air traffic control but there are parts of those environments which have lent themselves to flexibility but if you are in what we call the precariat, or if you're in a retail environment conversations about location really do not have the same transactional value to you then can i meet my energy bill can I pay for my food bills? Of
0: course. I guess I also meant, though, how as a trade union do you represent members who just say, look, our managers are just awful. The leadership is terrible. Negotiate a better run organisation for us. Or is that not what you get called in to do?
5: Oh, no, we do. And even sometimes the most sophisticated and high quality employers can have periods where our challenge is to remind them how good they were and why good was a business um, differentiator. You know, we've not had a dispute in air traffic control in over 30 years. We had some real tensions coming out of COVID and into twenty one, twenty two, And there were a few moments where we could have actually got into a dispute. Can you tell us a so. bit more
0: about that? Because actually off, off mic... Mike you told us a bit about this I mean how without wanting to break your confidentiality so I think the idea that a trade union like yours averted the skies being closed is every bit as valid a story as the trade unions that are calling their members out on strike the idea that you're averting the strike so can you share with us a little bit of intel
5: well, I think the first thing you, you need to do when you're in a long-term relationship with an employer is understand their problems mm-hmm. and what's motivating them to feel as they do. Now, there was an existential threat to aviation in March 2020 when literally everything was on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, you know the n- number of rotations for our air traffic controllers were very few. Lots of staff had to also work from home as well. And we were on the uncertain period of what, what that was going to mean for, for the industry, let alone the people. Mm-hmm. few decisions were then taken about key terms and conditions in that period which i think they probably would not have taken if to be fair to them as an executive team we're not facing an existential threat and the the bewilderment even for experienced executives of what is going on here we can't fly will we be able to fly again there's no vaccine what does this mean now also i would say there was some discontinuities because actually everything was having to be conducted on screen And even previously good relationships, which had been tested at different times, became strained. And look, we were all worried. So your day started with worry. You know, you're at home. We're home in quite the same way. We were all adapting to Zoom and Teams, and suddenly we're becoming aficionados, etc. I think a telling thing for me was that when they gave notice on what was the redundancy agreement, 12 months later, when it was. Expired. They hadn't scenario planned what the likely response from the workforce was, was, in my view, that our air traffic controllers and system specialists who are deeply committed to it were not going to put up with this. And, you know, what was going to be the consequence? And the consequence would be opposition. But what you don't forget if, if you're trying to find solution is that it's easy to pigeonhole management as hawks. Now, some could be behaving hawkishly, could be behaving opportunistically, But one of the things was to remind us, our side and then look, this is an unusual circumstance. Normally we solve these things. What's gone wrong? So we set about actually talking. We set about exploring. And it took quite a number of months to establish the fact that the key thing here, there was some substance, but trust had been lost on all sides. Did you need some external facilitation for that, or did you just go head-to-head as it were? We first of all tried it together. We decided one key thing to re-establishing trust was to meet in person. And we did that safely in the building. You know, I'm proud that our covid measures for both our staff and any visitors through that this time. We're now in 2021 when we will begin to be able to, you know, move back into a secure degree of in-person working. In-person helped massively. You could look people in the eye, you could talk them over a cup of coffee, you could talk privately, they could talk to us. We could start to have the honest conversations again which probably had broken down in that 12-month period. I
0: think the intimacy and the terror of the environment that you're describing, being midway through 2021, oddly helped avert the disaster. In other words, if that was happening now, you might have had an air traffic control strike too.
5: Uh, I, I, well, look, you're never out of the woods, but we did bring in, st- ultimately, external facilitation, a trusted party on both sides. And the product of it now is actually people saying things have changed again for the better. We've brought it back round. We represent groups of people in the economy prospect that have enormous industrial muscle. We represent virtually all the air traffic controllers in the country, not just in Nats but elsewhere. 70 odd percent of the air traffic system specialists. With that sort of bargaining power comes innate responsibility, and often your greatest strength is your potential, not your actual. And power engineering members would be similar, you know, members in grid control, distribution system, control rooms across the country and so on. So what we're good at as a union is probably saying at the right moments and draped in a little bit of maybe the M word, the bit of the menace is, do you want to do this?
0: The menace rather than the charm. So, okay. you,
5: you know, the, the charm and the menace and all, look, I, I think the, but the honest thing is that you need deep trust relationships to say to sometimes an employer, look, you really don't want to go here. Mm. If you keep saying every time there's a change you don't want to go here, you lose your traction, right? So unions need to be adaptable. And if it's a complex environment and a monopoly, remember, Mm -hmm. still a monopoly even though it's in private hands, it's a monopoly environment, you must use that well.
1: Now, I'm going to have to just interject here to say that one of the reasons Mike Clancy is such a formidable negotiator, it seems to me, is that after his MA, he also did an MBA at Cranfield. And when we asked him about this, he, got, he was really interesting on, well, well, the numbers and more.
5: Well, one of the things okay, well, I came back with my MBA, I drum, I've tried to drum into my own organisation. People often talk to you about numbers and give you no context. And round here, people are tired of me saying, don't, don't bring numbers without context. You know, so often in the union movement, we, oh, we recruited, recruited 5,000. How many did we lose? What's the net figure? We've done a lot more now on per capita yield per member. We've done a lot more on ensuring that there's a line of sight between our organising and our finances. You know, the union's the largest ever been, and that's down to the efforts of all of our representatives and all of our staff, not just me, and I'll make that point seriously. But if you don't run yourself internally in the union as a good business, with the best people practices you can afford, with, with good performance management, with good finance and good infrastructure, I mean, none of us can do our jobs unless the computers are working. And I think as a union general secretary, and I'm, you know, probably a little bit, different in some respects. I want to know that stuff. And there was a line from the MBA, driving in good business practice. And, and actually, yes, you know, you need to be able to know your economics, you need to be able to know your accountancy terms. And if someone wants to have a conversation with you about an investment appraisal, you need to know what the discount rate is. Well, Mike, thank you. It's been great to hear from you with some time to listen to
1: some of the arguments in full. We don't always get in those snatched two-minute clips on the news. I wish Everton well. I hope there's a new Holy Trinity to recreate, uh, what was it, Ball and Harvey and and Kendall, Kendall, which you grew up watching. Thank you for your time, for your hospitality here at Prospect and for spending some time with us in the Nowhere office.
0: And I'm very glad we had significantly more charm and almost zero menace. Mike Clancy, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I love that. Really, what Mike Clancy's saying is that you know, it's not just negotiator, mediator, charm and menace, but haggling
1: skills too. Yes, Mike isn't always jumping in front of cameras to be on the telly. He keeps quite a low profile and it's a shame we don't have more like that in public life, perhaps. The inside story on uh, air traffic control is well, really serious stuff and you need a cool head there. It's interesting that for understandable reasons, we, we tend to hear a lot more about the strikes that do break out than all the ones that uh, are avoided and don't.
0: Well, we have to leave it there for now with the General Secretary and turn to our other guests as we explore the issue of conflict. So let's turn now to someone else traditionally associated with conflict or at least confrontation, a barrister.
1: And not just any barrister, as a certain ad campaign might put it, but a really celebrated barrister. That's Jamie Suskind. I believe, Julia, he is your witness.
0: Joining us now on the Nowhere Office in this Nowhere Office special as part of our series with Prospect, the trade union, and joining us from his home office is the barrister and best-selling author, specialist in politics, technology, and the law. What a great combo, Jamie Suskind. Jamie, thank you for joining us on the Nowhere Office.
6: Thank you
4: so much for having me. I'm honoured to be here.
0: Oh, well we love a guest that says that, don't we, Stefan? It's a pre it's a prerequisite. Jamie, <laughs> you're you've been at the bar actually for 10 years, and you've in that time managed to corner something of a market, haven't you, in really crunchy employment disputes. Who do you primarily who do you primarily act for, or is it just a complete mishmash?
4: It's a bit of a mishmash and it's changed over time. So the great thing about being an employment lawyer is at the beginning of your career, you act for everyone and anyone. So I've acted for security guards, for, the, for people who worked in the local garage, but I've also acted for kind of global banks. I've acted for global bankers. Basically, you act for whoever wants you. You're not allowed as a barrister to turn down cases on the basis of whether you agree or disagree with them. My staple these days is complex discrimination and whistleblowing claims. So I tend to act in cases where someone is saying that they have been fired or treated less favorably because they blew the whistle on some kind of unsafe or illegal practice or because they were a woman or because they were a particular race or religion.
1: This interesting question of whistleblowing, I presume, requires a lot of due diligence to use a better, to want to form a better phrase in in, in terms of recognising whether there's a genuine grievance and whether normal managerial hierarchical channels have been explored because of obviously the accusation made against some so-called whistleblowers is it's not really a legitimate grievance it's just it's just a grievance
4: well exactly I, and you know the, the to bring a whistleblowing claim there are a number of hurdles that you need to get through firstly you need to disclose information so you can't just be giving your opinion about something you need to actually disclose facts and then there are various conditions attached to it that information needs in your reasonable belief to be made in the public interest, disclosed in the public interest, and it needs to tend to show that something has been breached, whether it's a law or a health and safety concern or or that some kind of provision like that is likely to be breached. So there are all kinds of hurdles. Unfortunately, I see lots of cases where people do go through the official channels and a lot of good it, it does them. They get designated a troublemaker and they get eased out of businesses. And what you need to do is gather as much evidence as possible and piece together for the tribunal the real reason why someone was actually treated the way they were treated.
0: What is the sort of nuanced difference for the unenlightened listener, and I include myself amongst this group, who doesn't really know the difference between what happens in a tribunal or or a courtroom or the high court? Is there a difference?
4: There is, but they are both, in effect, courts of law they're just slightly different. So a tribunal is designed in a way that's supposed to be less formal, less rigid in its procedure. So for instance, you don't wear wigs and gowns, you are seated rather than standing. It is a forum in which it is anticipated that people will often not have legal representation. So people are just there themselves. And you know the proceedings are conducted with as little jargon and as little legal terminology as possible. That said, the law is unavoidable, they are courts of law, they are formal places, and serious legal work and serious legal advocacy is done there, both by represented parties and unrepresented parties. But in a sense, they are designed, like other tribunals, in fact, to be just slightly less formidable than a court.
1: Either way, I mean, inviting a a broad generalisation, what is it about conflict in the workplace and in this emerging new world of work? What is it that we should really be looking out for what sort of cases or extreme examples, if you like, characterising how this world of work is shaping up? What are the the problems people are bringing to you?
4: Well, let me first of all emphasise continuity. Employment law is a little bit like family law. It usually involves a relationship that has gone badly wrong and you attach various legal labels to things, you make things into litigation points, but ultimately you've normally got people who in some way have misunderstood each other, have fallen out, and are at loggerheads. That has always been the case with employment law and it will always be the case. Of course, the context changes. So for instance, at the cutting edge of discrimination law these days are a lot of cases involving religion and belief. So you're not allowed to discriminate against people on the basis of religion and and belief, but what counts as a religion or belief that is protected by the law is something that is never settled and new cases come before tribunals the whole time. There have been cases, for instance, relating to trans issues about whether certain views about that issue can qualify for protection under the law. That's a good example of a recent controversy in the area which the Appeal Tribunal resolved. I would also say, interestingly, there are always generational differences with employment law. My younger clients have, I would say, higher expectations about how they are treated in the workplace. Interestingly, not higher expectations about what they're going to be paid. I think a lot of people under the age of 30 sort of accept (laughs) that their parents were better paid than they were. Their parents have more money than they do, but they do demand and expect a level of respect in the workplace, an interpersonal affirmation that perhaps their bosses and managers in their 40s and 50s are less used to. So I increasingly see kind of intergenerational clashes, which I find quite interesting. Those are the two big areas of kind of change that I see and and that I've been able to see in my decade of practice at the bar. You know, people often want peace, but it's often recognised that in order to get peace, you have to negotiate it from a position of strength. And I think the same is often true in litigation.
1: Now, of course, some workplaces are not quite, say, 21st century modern, up-to-date digital and particularly uh, topical at the moment is what seems to happen at the Palace of Westminster and in Whitehall, one in particular prominent case with allegations of bullying. Enlighten us on on bullying and cases where that is the accusation being made. How do we, how do we define bullying? How do we know when it's happening and what redress do we have legally against that sort of persistent?
2: So
4: let me, let me sidestep any comment on any outstanding investigations that are going on and just talk about bullying generally, because it's actually a fascinating topic for employment lawyers because Unsurprisingly, bullying is one of those things that is kind of endemic in society. Wherever you have an institution, there's likely to be a strong person bullying someone who is in a weaker position than them. And what's interesting about English employment law is that there is no specific law prohibiting bullying, as you and I would would kind of generally understand it. There are laws that are kind of adjacent to bullying, which if you bully someone might be caught by those laws. So for instance, if you bully someone On the grounds of a protected characteristic, their age, their sex, their race, their religion, that's going to be full foul of discrimination legislation. If you bully someone and you're more senior than them, or you allow bullying to take place which is so serious that it destroys the bond of trust and confidence that exists between the employer and the employee, then the employee can claim constructive dismissal and constructive unfair dismissal if they have been there for two years or longer. So, Quite, a lot, quite often, bullying claims end in a, an employee resigning and, and bringing legal action. But there is no cause of action, bullying. I claim bullying. Bullying is a kind of ancillary, factual circumstance which can, can buttress other legal claims. Now, if I take my lawyer hat off for a second and, and try to think like a politician, I think that's a problem. I think the law should prohibit bullying. I think bullying is nasty and is unacceptable. I'm not talking about low-level bullying, but I think you could shape shape a law which is sufficiently kind of serious, so it only catches serious bullying, but, it, but that it does capture it. And we all know bullying when we see it, and I'm confident that an employment tribunal would be able to identify it. <laughs> On this point, there is this thing that employment lawyers sometimes say which is known as the the bastard defense which is where someone brings a discrimination claim and they say you know this guy treated me like dirt he 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 bullied me he antagonized me he belittled me and he did all of this because i'm jewish or whatever and because it has to be attached to a protected characteristic to qualify as discrimination and the bastard defense says yeah i'm a bastard but I'm not a racist bastard. And that will quite often allows for success in the employment tribunal. I've always seen this as a kind of odds lacuna of English employment law because a lot of bullying doesn't reach the standard that would be required for instance for a common law claim or a statutory claim for harassment which is much more serious. I'm not talking about harassment under the Equality Act, confusingly. There's one type of harassment which is like discriminatory harassment and there's another type of harassment which is very very serious and persistent sort of things like stalking and, 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 and which has nothing to do with an employment law necessarily. But there's a load of bullying that falls in between those gaps, and I, and, I, and I don't think that we have the answer to it currently in the law.
0: Gosh. I mean, gosh is the word, isn't it? Jaw-dropping stuff we've been hearing about conflict, Stefan, stuff I hadn't really thought about before.
1: Well, yes, and it's certainly the case that if you do have to go to court, you really need someone who knows their stuff and can make your case as clearly and persuasively as our learned friend, Mr Suskin, does.
0: Too right. So look, even with an extended episode, we can't do justice to all the rights and wrongs of the workplace, especially in this first episode. But we'll end now with some remarks made by an observer of employment conflict rather than a participant in litigating or resolving
1: them. Well, to give us some perspective on the the conflicts and issues which are dominating the world of work at the moment, we're very lucky, delighted to have joining us Sarah O'Connor, of the Financial Times. She's an associate editor there, columnist, a reporter, and absolutely in the thick of the world of work. Sarah, hello, thanks very much for joining us here in the Nowhere office. Thanks for having me. Now, you've covered lots of stories memorably, Amazon, what was really going on there, textiles in Leicester, really sort of devastating piece of reporting. But can you tell us at the moment what you're seeing in the, in the world of work in terms of conflict, how employee relations are are shaping up in in, in a range of workplaces. We're obviously interested in white-collar, but don't limit yourself to that.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, we're clearly going through a period of industrial unrest, aren't we, of a a scale that I think hasn't really been seen overall since the 70s. Now, a lot of that is driven by the public sector, clearly, but we've also been seeing it popping up in various other places, including, as you mentioned, white-collar workplaces, so, you know, we've been seeing more kind of unionization attempts among tech workers. We've certainly seen civil servants and other sort of office and clerical workers asserting themselves more than we might have seen in previous years. And the obvious sort of trigger for that is inflation. (laughs) I think every time inflation is high, it creates a kind of battle over who has to swallow the pain and how the sort of pain should be distributed, I suppose. And on top of that, You know, clearly the pandemic had a huge number of different effects, both on the way we work and also on how people feel about the way they work. So, yeah, it's a really, really interesting time to be paying attention to to the labour market.
0: And Sarah, apropos that last point, I mean, there's a sort of passive resistance and passive activism happening along in the white collars, isn't there? I mean, obviously, it's been called the Great Resignation, but I wonder whether you think it's a little bit over the top what I say, which is in some ways the white-collar worker and the and the blue-collar worker are curiously more aligned than they've ever been before. But there's a, there is a bit of a symmetry happening, isn't there?
3: Well, I certainly think that there is a, a sense... I mean, it's hard to measure these things, isn't it, in any way that's remotely sort of robust or quantitative. But, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time talking to people who work in all kinds of different workplaces, I definitely feel that right now there is quite a lot of discontent i suppose with with people's jobs and i say jobs rather than work because i think sometimes we kind of conflate those two words but what i what i kind of see more and more at the minute is people who actually say i love my work like the actual work isn't the problem here you know and this you particularly hear this in 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 public sector settings you know from teachers nurses but not exclusively in those settings at all. You know, you sometimes hear it from lawyers, bankers, you know, the work itself, people care about, people find it fulfilling, people enjoy it, not always, but, you know, for this group. But what they'll say is it's the it's the job that's getting me down. So, And often that's because the job is in some way getting in the way of the work that they want to do or the quality of work that they want to produce. So if you're, you know, a nurse or a doctor, or or indeed a care worker. There's something that's quite sort of viscerally painful, I think, in wanting to do the best by your patients and feeling that you're not able to Mm. because the system itself is so overwhelmed or because there are staff Mm. shortages. And staff shortages, I think, are a big one. I mean, we all know that there are, you know, broadly across the economy as a whole, there are labour shortages. And I think that that, in some ways, that's kind of increased the bargaining power of workers, but it also can make Mm. the experience of being at work quite hard. (laughs) You know, anyone Mm. who's been in a team where you're one or two people down and you're all basically covering for that person's work knows that it becomes quite exhausting and it can sort of suck the joy out of out of what the job can be you
1: know as Drucker said half of you know what we call management seems to make it harder for people to get on with their work what what are you finding when you look at workplaces how are people dealing with some of these continuing tensions of of dissatisfaction whether it's the system whether it's the manager or 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 the, the lack of people
3: yeah, I suppose you're seeing a mixture of responses. You you, you know, you see people in unionised workplaces who are indeed going out on strike. You've also seen higher levels of people quitting their jobs. You know, Julia, you mentioned the great resignation. And, you know, you can definitely see that in the data that the proportion of people who switch jobs in the UK and in the US and in other countries has been much higher post-pandemic than it had been previously we see some people who've left the world of work altogether whether that's because of ill health or whether that's because people have just decided to retire early so there are those sorts of responses you know either sort of stay and fight or give up and and leave there was this phenomenon that uh, i don't know if you discussed it yourselves on the podcast it was a sort of popular term last year over quiet quitting now this this term kind of enraged me because it, i think it was it was really one of these Terms that PR sort of latch onto and decide are, are really interesting and just attribute all kinds of things to without much science behind it. But I mean, I think what they were trying to get at was that this sense of actually people not really being willing to go above and beyond necessarily in the same way. And I would argue that not going above and beyond does not mean that you are quiet quitting. It means that you're doing the job that you've been paid to do. But maybe there were industries, indeed, there were industries where actually going above and beyond had become almost the, the norm, had become the expectation. And actually, it's very dangerous as an employer to be relying on that, because as you know, we've learned in recent years, that depends on goodwill. And the moment that you lose goodwill or people are simply too tired or too stretched or they have caring responsibilities or whatever it might be, then you can lose that that extra bit of time and effort that people are putting in. And if your whole business model was calibrated to uh, having that all the time, then you can suddenly find yourself in quite a a sticky situation.
1: A sticky situation. That is really such a good analogy for these conflicts, sticky. That's Sarah Connor there, bringing to an end this first episode of the programmes we've made with Prospect, the professional services trade union, looking at the nitty-gritty of work the workplace and employment matters.
0: Our thanks to Mike Clancy and Andrew Pakes of Prospect, Jamie Suskind, the barrister with 11KBW, that's short for King's Bench Walk, who you can find out more about on jamiesuskind.com, and Sarah O'Connor of the FT.
1: In our next episode, we'll be looking in detail at the workplace, that's the changing workplace, and of course, yes, the office.
6: I think we, even before the pandemic, we. We were looking at our estate. We had two large buildings, so we had a building about 20,000 square feet that we were using in Waterloo, that we're still there. And then we had another building, 12,500 square feet in, in Clapham, and both buildings, basically combined, had lots of excess space. So to go down to what, what will now be about being 18,000 square feet, we're actually completely downsized. But I think that as an organisation, we're hopeful that we're still going to have that, the occupancy that we need. So it's not about making people come in five days a week. We, we've completely gone hybrid. But it's, it's more about using the space in an effective way that makes us come together, makes us work better, and ultimately it's about taking the movement forward. So this, this is what this, the vision of this building is about. Oh, I had the
0: best hard hat tour of Prospect's new building and learned such a lot about everything from health and safety to why bosses still want the corner office, even union bosses. But we're out of time for today. You'll have to find out how we got on in the next episode. For now, you've been listening to The Nowhere Office with me, Julia Hofspawn. And me. Stephen Stern. It's a fully connected production. Do find out more by going to prospect.org.uk and we're at thenowhereoffice.com. Bye-bye.
1: Goodbye.